There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Will Dunn, business editor at The New Statesman, and you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Cunliffe, associate political editor at The New Statesman. Rachel has spent the last few weeks speaking to Liz Truss's inner circle who believe that although their time was famously short, it will come again. Trussonomics is not over. Rachel, take us back to the hazy, crazy days <laughs> of autumn 2022, uh, all 49 days of um, Liz Truss's time in power. And uh, what, so talk us about the well, the state of the country, what it was like then, uh, and, you know, relive for us that that exciting moment in the, our economic history. It, it feels really weird to go back and remember it because it's, it's very surreal. It's like, did that really happen? So, yeah, she becomes prime minister on the 6th of September and then basically pretty much immediately uh, starts to announce this this big energy support package and then the Queen dies and then everything goes on pause for 10 days uh, and we sort of forget that politics and everything existed. And then when we come back after the the, the mourning period, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng announce their mini budget, which it has to be a mini budget and not a budget because a budget has to be accompanied by OBR figures and forecasts, which they do not have. And what was really interesting, that was on a Friday and the reaction from conservatives and actually from the business community at that point was like in a way broadly positive they were like oh okay this is quite radical um in that mini budget they obviously have the uh 30 billion pound energy support price guarantee um and uh, two policies that trust had said over the summer that she would enact as prime minister during the Tory leadership contest, one of which was reversing a tax, an income tax increase, and one of which was delaying an increase to corporation tax. So she's got that. But then out of nowhere, Kwasi Kwarteng goes, oh, and we're also cutting the top rate of income tax, the 45p rate for top earners who earn over £100,000, which like came out of nowhere. I spoke to people in her cabinet who were like, we had no idea that was coming. We saw it on TV. Um, and also announced uh, scrapping caps on bankers' bonuses, which doesn't cost the Treasury anything, but kind of it sends a message, right? And then over the weekend, Kwasi Kwarteng gets asked, it's all a bit much, isn't it? And he goes, there's more to come. Uh, and uh, as, as New Testament business editor, you will know what happened next, which is <laughs> on Monday, the, the Asian markets opened and we kind of went into free fall and the pound plunged. And it turned out that it really matters when uh, the international markets lose faith in government debt because 
gilt yields surged and that plunged just into a pension crisis. Trust goes to conference and goes, everything is fine, but I'm reversing on the 45p tax rate thing. That's not happening. But also it's all your fault. Does this mad speech about the anti-growth coalition. It doesn't help. Then she sacks Kwasi Kwarteng and brings in Jeremy Hunt, who just reverses everything. And then a week later, she's gone. In the interim, she was compared to a lettuce, which I told a, an American um, news channel. And they were like, explain the lettuce thing to me. Um, and now it's a year later and we've kind of all forgotten that it happened. But it was really weird, right? It was. It was. It was It was such a fun time, wasn't it? I mean, not for <laughs> anyone who was trying to buy a house or that was know, me, keep by the business going. Oh, God. <laughs> OK, I should play down there how fun it was. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a very exciting time. And uh, it was a very divisive time, wasn't it? Because there was, as you say, there was lots of different things going on. There were lots of different measures. Some of them, they were rolling back things that um, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak had said they were going to do. There was other stuff going on, uh, you know, politically, socially, uh, like you say, the curtailment of the political process by the Queen dying. Uh, as you say in your piece, it was kind of everything everywhere all at once. It was the, you know, uh, they sacked uh, Tom Scholar, uh, from the oh, yeah, Treasury. I forgot about that. And How the, could I yeah. forget sacking of Tom Scholar? That's what kicked it all yeah. off. And the, uh, yeah, and they didn't let the OBR publish their reports. And it was just, you know, it was everywhere. Uh, you know, all this, uh, the massively contentious political economic programme. Uh, and then, uh, and, and Liz Truss, as you say, at conference doing this amazing speech where, you know, she was talking about, you know, oh, it's the, there's these woke bond traders, <laughs> the woke markets. How dare they? They're against us uh, in our political programme. But, I mean, um, with the hindsight of a year's diff distance, um, you know, who, who do the Trussites really blame now? And to what extent do they have a point? So this is really interesting. There's been lots of sort of retrospectives about that period. And I wanted to kind of look forward and go, OK, these people haven't gone away. These ideas haven't gone away. Where are they now? So to start with Liz Truss, uh, we know who she blames because she wrote a 4,000 word piece in The Telegraph in February. And she has also just done an interview with the, the Mail on Sunday. And I won't be able to list all of them because there are a lot, but it's woke institutions, the civil service, the Bank of England, the OBR, the IMF, President Biden, Greta Thunberg, um, the media and the Conservative Party. Those are some of the key Everyone. <laughs> it's kind of everyone, yeah. Um, and it's definitely not her. Uh, but her argument is, like, she wasn't given a chance, everything was against her, uh, and, um, you know, she was still right, and maybe she could have managed the resistance better, but really the resistance was very, very unfair. Nobody I spoke to shared quite that level of insistence that she did nothing wrong. And actually, some of the people I spoke to were quite critical of her and her team. It's very interesting getting the view of sort of the more pro-trust people versus, I spoke to Kwasi Kwarteng, who actually, I'm not going to say he blamed her for a lot of it because he didn't put it in those words, but he said she moved too fast. He says he tried to warn her that she was moving too fast. Other people I spoke to said actually like a lot of it came from him, he didn't have to go on TV and say, you ain't seen nothing yet, we're going we're gonna to do more of it. Um, but there's generally a consensus that they moved way too fast because they thought there's going to be an election in two years, they've only got two years to enact their programme, we have to get started now. If we want this stuff to, to show results by the next election, we have to do it now. As it happened, they, they only got 
six weeks or seven weeks. Somebody I spoke to said it was seven weeks. It wasn't six weeks. She lasted 49 days, um, which I thought was quite sweet. So yeah, there's the there's the we moved too fast approach. Um, there is some criticism, even on like serious economists, uh, of some of the ways the policies, I guess, were introduced or explained to the public. I mean, they weren't explained to the public, but I got a lot of criticism of the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, that was obviously set up by George Osborne, so not really a woke institution, set up by a Tory austerity-loving chancellor, but that the the OBR models things in such a way that supply-side pro-growth reforms, like tax cuts, the benefits of those aren't counted as much as they should have been. And obviously there were, there was sort of the media as well, the fact that we all kind of went, it's a cost of living crisis. All of these policies are designed for the the, the, the wealthiest. How, how do you explain that? So I think a bit of criticism of Truss herself, a bit of criticism from Kwasi Kwarteng of the sequencing of announcing all of these tax cuts and all of this spending on the energy price guarantee without matching it with any savings, without saying, how are you going to to pay for that. And there is an awareness that saying you're going to spend loads of money and saying, oh, yeah, we'll find some way to pay for it later, but we won't tell you, doesn't really make you look like a serious government. I think it was Larry Summers, the former chair of the US Federal Reserve, said uh, that Britain was behaving like an emerging market. And I think that that kind of was the consensus that serious governments don't do this. And so even if you think the policies were right, there's sort of widespread acceptance that the way they tried to do it was not helpful. Yeah. And if you behave like an emerging market, then you get your debt priced like the debt of an emerging market. And then you get people saying, oh, wow, it's really expensive to get a mortgage now. But, you know, since then, the the, the adults or the, the technocrats or whatever you want to call them are, are back in charge and uh, everything's fine now, or is it? Everything's totally fine. Do you, yeah. not, do you not feel fine? <laughs> um, certainly looking at, at, you know, the guilt yields that, that went right up after the mini, mini budget, they haven't come back down to where they were, have they? And, you know, growth has not sort of resumed. There are a lot of, you know, ways in which Trust and Kuateng had a point, aren't there? I mean, the, the growth question is also the concern of, like, that's fundamental to Labour's programme as well. So this is what I found really interesting, is that Labour's first mission, Kirstama's first mission, which is for the UK to have the highest sustained growth in the G7, um, that could be taken straight out of Liz Truss's ideas. There's this like, sort of consensus that we need growth because Britain has grown at like 1.5% on average since the financial crash. And if there had been more growth, many of the problems that we're seeing now, the pressures on budgets, or household budgets, but also departmental budgets, public services, public sector pay, infrastructure spending, all of that would kind of go away if we had grown at the rate that we were meant to be growing at. And they're not wrong about that. And one of the things that I think is quite challenging for Sunak is that he took over as the grown-up in the room. Obviously, he lost the, the the vote of Conservative Party members over the summer and was appointed Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister without them running another election that would go to members. And the, the rationale for doing that was this guy can steady the ship, this guy can help fix things. And he and Jeremy Hunt helped fix things in the sense that they, they didn't continue to collapse at the speed of which they were collapsing when he came in. But Britain's economic position now, as you say, like it, it's not great and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of 
plan for how you can kickstart a recovery. So you've got these voices in the Conservative Party who are going, yeah, Liz Truss got the execution wrong, but the ideas were right. And actually, the longer we have the grown-ups in the room, we have Sunak uh, and, and Jeremy Hunt, and things don't get better, the more people will realise that she was right all along. They also kind of point to some global factors, like uh, we've had a decade of QE, so interest rates were going to rise anyway. In fact, they were rising anyway. They were rising in other countries, that the the dollar was very strong and, and that hurt the UK. So like all of these trends that were underway and that they say Liz Truss was actually warning about, and then she became prime minister and they argue, tried to do something about it. And then the trends that were already underway continued and she was blamed for that. I mean, how you square that with the timing that you know he delivered the mini budget on the Friday and on the Monday, the markets completely went into free fall. I think there's a little bit of revisionism going on there. But the point about the wider global economic trends are true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's the case that the, the Bank of England was due to uh, start its quantitative tightening program sort of the day after the mini budget, uh, which was sort of would have affected the uh, the price uh, and the yield of gilts because it would have meant that the Bank of England was then selling gilts back into the market, uh, as well as the, the government doing that by um, uh, bringing in all this new um, new debt. Coming up after the break, how the Trussite ideologues plan on regaining control of the Conservative Party. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. So if for the rest of Rishi Sunak's time in power and potentially for a Labour government's time in power, you have an economics that is characterised by grey-suited fiscal discipline and doesn't fix the underlying problems, then you can imagine the ideas of the Trussites becoming much more popular and credible again, um, even if the personalities, you know, Liz Truss and um, Kwasi Kwarteng, who originally espoused them, are toxic um, electorally. So what are those ideas? How are they going to sell them to the public? And, and who's going to do it? Yeah, so... I think to understand like what the ideas are, it's kind of worth thinking about free market ideology. Like, what is it? Because we talk about, we throw around terms like pro-growth and supply-side reform. Obviously, that means different different things to different people. The kind of free market ideology is the, the philosophy of Milton Friedman and, and Hayek. 
very closely associated in this country with the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a right-wing free market think tank in the US with uh, institutions like the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. But the broad idea is that markets are good and the state generally is bad and should stay out of the way and that markets are the most efficient way of allocating resources. And if you want a really productive pro-growth economy, you want to keep the state as far out of it as possible. So very low taxes. Obviously, you need some taxes for things like roads and schools and police, but very as low as you possibly can and low regulation. You let businesses kind of get on with it and then you have growth and everyone gets wealthier and everything's fine. And that's kind of the ideology where they're coming from. The idea is that if you cut taxes, which is what Liz Truss was trying to do, then you incentivize people to be more economically productive and that makes your economy grow as a whole and benefits everyone. Now, these ideas, um, they're the decades old, but kind of this modern iteration of it, I would say, began just after the 2010 election, this new influx of Conservative MPs. Uh, Liz Truss, very closely associated with the IEA think tank, pretty much as soon as she became an MP. And uh, sort of two years into the Cameron government, her and Kwasi Kwarteng and three other MPs, uh, Preeti Patel, Chris Skidmore and Dominic Raab, published this book, Britannia Unchained, uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, where they argued exactly this, that if we wanted to recover from the financial crisis, we didn't want this kind of soft touch Cameron Osborne type of conservatism. We needed tax cuts and to, to really light a fire under British enterprise and innovation and animal spirits and, and pro-growth and that the state was bloated and that that was kind of the way to solve things. And so this ideology, these ideas have been going on in the Conservative Party throughout the last 13 years of Conservative government. And in a way, a lot of the people involved in the movement feel that although we've had Conservative governments since 2010, their type of conservatism hasn't had a hearing. They haven't had their turn. So they were really waiting for their moment where they could put into practice some of the ideas that had been floating around since then. Um, obviously, it didn't go well and it didn't survive contact with reality. And there was certainly a lot of frustration and a certain amount of despair that something that so many people had worked so hard on for so long had been tarnished and made so toxic by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng in that six or seven week period. But the ideas remain and the people remain and they remain in the Conservative Party. The latest iteration of it is this organisation called the Conservative Growth group, which is a group of Conservative MPs. Now, there are lots of factions within the Conservative Party. There are the moderate One Nation group. We hear a lot about the Red Wallers. We hear about the, the new Conservatives, that kind of pro-big state, small C Conservative people like Danny Kruger and, and Miriam Cates. These people are different. They are quite socially liberal when it comes to a lot of those issues but their, their big thing is like low taxes and low state intervention and there are about 50 or so conservative MPs they say who are kind of involved in this group it's set up by Ranil Jayawandena and Simon Clark who were both cabinet ministers in Liz Truss's cabinet and they understand that she didn't do a great job of, of kind of promoting these ideas uh, and their aim they say is to kind of nudge the Sunak hunt government towards more low-tax, pro-growth policies. 
what that looks like is a bit of debate. Um, one of them is abolishing inheritance tax because they say that's a tax on aspiration that incentivizes people to be less economically productive than they might otherwise be. Um, obviously, planning reform and building more houses and infrastructure, that's a, that's a big one. And the one that they claim they've actually had an impact on already is in Jeremy Hunt's first budget, he abolished the lifetime pensions allowance, which was a limit on how much you could save towards a pension in a lifetime. And obviously, this primarily benefited those who were saving quite a lot towards their pensions. But it was explained that this thing was a tax on doctors. It was keeping, it was incentivizing experienced NHS consultants in their 50s to retire early. And obviously, that's really bad for the NHS. Whereas if you abolish it, you keep these people in the NHS for longer everyone wins. And one of the things that Simon Clark said to me is they were able to make that case kind of on its own merits without it being associated with Liz Trust. If Liz Trust had suggested it, nobody would have touched it. So they feel that they're kind of almost already having an impact on the direction of the of the Hunt-Sunak agenda. Yeah. So they, um, they, they remain an influential group within the Conservative Party. Uh, and obviously, they're main thing is is economic policy which is um the key polling issue at the moment but how do these particular economic ideas go down with voters because i mean when, I, when somebody like me hears them or you know if you take them to somebody like the ifs they might say well that's the idea that you're going to have a, a lower tax society does not match up with the increased demands on spending that you're going to have from things like most people uh, living to an older age climate change, geopolitical instability, all of these things mean that it's much more likely that people are going to have to pay more tax in future. So uh, it might seem to to some people like uh, yearning for a bygone age uh, of, of low tax. But, um, you know, a lot of people presumably quite like that. Does it poll well? So I spoke to some pollsters about this. It's really difficult to poll free market ideas because most people don't necessarily know what those are. Um, and so there isn't kind of polling on the specific ideology. Obviously, tax cuts poll quite well with conservative voters um, and, and certain uh, tax cuts like um you know, corporation tax, like people in the business community do understand that that kind of has an impact on employment and what they can produce. The free marketeers are obsessed with this thing called the Laffer curve, um, which was drawn on a napkin by a US economist called Art Laffer, which kind of shows that if you increase the rate of tax to a certain point, people are incentivized to work less. And so the actual amount of money that you collect from those taxes decreases. There's an optimum tax level where you might be taxing people less, but you're actually getting more in tax because they're being more productive. Now, there are so many arguments about how that works and where that point is. And obviously, it differs society by society. Um, but their, their broad point is not, we want less money for public services. It's if you cut taxes somewhat counterintuitively, you can get more money for public services. So that's kind of one thing that they say. The other thing, I spoke to Mark Littlewood, who is director of the IEA, uh, and he kind of made the point that on paper, people might not like these ideas, but if they are enacted and they see that they are wealthier and their prospects and their children's prospects have improved because of them, the sort of the outcomes and the results speak for themselves. Obviously, he works in a think tank, not in politics. He's not trying to get elected. But I think that is partly why Liz Truss felt she had to go so fast. If she could do this quickly and then people were feeling the benefits by the next election, she felt 
they would give the the ideas and the policies a chance because they would actually feel the benefits of it. Mm. So do you think, in a way, Labour should sort of see this as a challenge in that, you know, that the trust sites are sort of saying, well, if you're not going to challenge economic orthodoxy, then we will. Yeah, definitely. And we've talked a lot on the New Statesman podcast about how Labour have a real challenge because they're really good at the moment about pointing out all the things that are falling apart, all the ways the Conservative government is failing. But they've said they're not going to put up taxes and they're not going to increase borrowing by March or they're going to be very careful about that. And there is a real question. I mean, Andrew Marr wrote this uh, a week ago. There's a real question about how you actually do improve things if you are very small-c conservative, you play it very, very safe with your economic policy. Obviously, Labour has a different way to go for growth. They Their big thing is um, state investment, particularly in, in the green economy, their Green New Deal. So the idea that you can borrow and it is financially, fiscally responsible to borrow if you're borrowing to invest in something that then makes your economy function a lot better and a lot more productive. There's a bit of a tussle going on with Rachel Reeves and Ed Miliband about when that money will come. I think $28 billion was the figure, but she said it would happen later in the Labour Parliament. So there is a row going on over money at the moment. Um, and Rachel Reeves also has this idea of securonomics, which uh, from what I can work out seems to mean like keeping things on track, basically a more active state that has an industrial strategy and directs the economy more. Obviously, these are like the opposite of free market ideas. So Labour are kind of with the Conservatives when it comes to we need growth, but have a very different idea about how to go about it. And the free marketeers argue Labour will try that, it won't work, and then there might be space in the conversation for them. Now, um, obviously, uh, within a within a, a magazine piece like this, you only get a certain amount of uh, paper to fill up with words. Um, uh, what what ended up on the on the cutting room floor? What didn't, didn't you have quite have enough space to cover within the piece that you would have liked to? I mean, it could have taken up the entire magazine, and I think <laughs> I am very grateful, and I'm sure the readers are too, that it didn't. Um, but one thing that was quite interesting is I didn't just speak to MPs, I spoke to economists, to uh, Julian Jessup, who's a IEA economist, and to various others who didn't want to be named, uh, about the the ideas from a sort of economics perspective rather than politically. And he pointed me in the direction of the Growth Commission, which is this separate organisation. It's not the group of MPs, they have a very similar name, but it's a, a group of economists mostly in the UK, but they have global ones too, who are trying to make this case for growth, the free market case for growth internationally and to sort of win the argument that way. And the reason I think that's interesting is because one of the reasons Liz Truss's budget fell apart so dramatically was that the numbers didn't add up and you had the OBR and uh, the IFS and others coming out and going, this is ludicrous, like look at this gaping black hole that you've got here. And one of the things that this group, the Growth Commission, argues is that the models that the OBR and other institutions use are not, they say they're not very dynamic. They're not very good at measuring what the potential impacts of certain policies could be. So they can count the cost of tax cuts and lost revenue, but they're not very good at counting the increase in productivity. And that they could, there could be models that would give you a, a different perspective that would say this might cost a lot, but here's what the benefits are. Let's compare it that way. There are also, I should say, a lot of economists who disagree with that quite dramatically and think that their numbers are 
overly optimistic or, or naive or even delusional. But I think the point is one of the things that the Growth Commission wants to do and that some of these economists want to do is design their own models so that when the OBR comes out and says this policy will cost you X billion pounds, how are you going to fill that? They can say, actually, our models say it would be a net gain for the Treasury. Uh, and then maybe you wouldn't have this panic that a trust-like government is behaving in a really unserious way because there'd be these figures that say, actually, this is feasible and this is possible. I think that's really interesting because that's not just cha challenging uh, the, the political establishment, which is what the MPs are doing. That's challenging the way we assess economics in general. And if that's what they're trying to do in this case, I think the implications of that are, you know, let's have different sets of numbers flying around and different people making those cases. And, and let's, let's have the argument there in the space of economic theory. I think you could get some really, really interesting debates from that uh, and, and probably some quite exciting policies too, although hopefully not as exciting as the six-week Liz Trust period. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, I mean, we have seen um, the ONS um, revising its, its assessment quite dramatically of the UK's recovery um, from from COVID. Um, you know, the economics is, is a matter of surveys and, and models, which are always going to be contentious. So, yeah, I think there's a, a clearly a strong argument for that. There's also a certain extent to which you might get people saying, well, they're marking their own homework. Well, you also get it on the other side as well. You had this when um, Corbyn was, was leader of the Labour Party, all Labour's spending plans, they're uncosted, and you had some Corbyn economists going, your models aren't taking into account the benefits of if we pump X million into investment in infrastructure, you'll be able to see those benefits, but they're not counted in that way. So I, I do think a debate is coming from the the left and the right over who does mark the homework and how objective uh, some of these institutions are. I don't have a view on that, um, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to speculate, but I think those conversations are coming. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right to say that that having that evidence base there will be for whichever side that the government that decides to really challenge uh, economic orthodoxy comes from. That having the homework done will be absolutely necessary to that project. Otherwise, you'll get Trust 2.0. Yeah, another lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. You can read Rachel's full piece, The Revenge of the Trustites, via the link in the show notes. This featured as the New Statesman's cover story for the 15th of September issue. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Will Dunn, and my colleague, Rachel Cunliffe. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Catherine Hughes.